0: All right, good morning, Faye. Let's find our seats and we'll get started. Let's extend a thanks to Alex for for filling in on short notice and coming down from Philly. Thank you, Alex. That was terrific. Love that. Jess hurt, actually Jess more than hurt, Jess broke her foot last Sunday. So if you get a chance to talk to Jess, you'll see that she's still a little like from the medication. So she's doing good. So it was a perfect job having Alex come down and fill in for us. Well, good morning. Welcome back to our series for 2023, The Life of Christ. As we walk through this year, we are focusing in on the events that took place in Jesus' life during his lifetime. But I don't want you to lose sight that this is one part of the whole of God's amazing plan for you and me. The Bible is one connected story from beginning to end. As they used to say in the church that I grew up with, from index to maps, from Genesis to Revelation, the entire Bible, one connected story. Nothing stands out for me more to show the connection that exists from the beginning to the end of Scripture than what happened in Exodus 3.14. In Exodus 3.14, Moses is speaking to God in the burning bush. And he asked God, God, if they ask me who sent me, what do I say? And then God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Say, I am who I am. Is he Popeye the sailor man? I mean, I am what I am, and that's all I am. I'm strong to the finish because I eat me spinach. I'm Popeye the sailor man. God said, say that I am has sent you, which seems like an odd thing to say. That's kind of like a, you know, an incomplete sentence or at least an incomplete thought midway through. I am. I am what? What are you? Lord, what are you? What do you mean, I am. I am what? It just doesn't make sense. That is, until you read the Gospel of John. And honestly, this blew my mind when I saw this, Jesus completes the sentence. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, I am the bread of life, John 6.35. I am the light of the world, John 8.12. I am the gate for those who want to enter, John 10.9. I am the good shepherd, John 10.11. I am the resurrection and the life, John 11, 25. I am the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6. I am the true vine, John 15, 1. That's seven ways that Jesus completes the sentence, I am who I am. The number seven in Bible represents completeness. Jesus completes the sentence, and he completes who God is. Amen. Amen. Absolutely. Jesus leaves no doubt in his teaching who he is. Jesus is teaching in the temple courts in John's gospel. And he is debating with the people who are there about many things. One about the claims that he made himself about being greater than Abraham. And at a certain point, Jesus says these words, very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered before Abraham was born. I am. I am. And at this they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. They understood what and who Jesus was claiming to be. From beginning to end, this is one unified story of God reaching out to you and me so that he could restore what we broke. We serve the great I am. Amen to that? Amen. You know it. We want to remind you, If you missed a message, any message of this year, the series, old series, you want to catch up, you can listen online. You can share it with a friend. You can always do so at ffcsermons.org, or you can download the podcast even if you want. You can also go to www.ffcph.org, click on the live tab, and watch a previous message on YouTube or Facebook. One other comment before we pray. We postponed First Sunday in May, so if you had signed up for that, next week will be First Sunday. We'll meet after church, and uh, we'll talk about where to grab a bite to eat so we can catch up. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your presence here with us. We thank you that you are the God of yesterday. You are the God of today. You are the God of tomorrow. The same yesterday, today, and forever. Underneath are your everlasting arms. Father, we thank you that we can trust you. We thank you that you are here for us, to comfort us, that you welcome us into your presence, to question you, to seek answers from you, Father, and to trust you with our lives. We ask that you be with us as we open up your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Today I want to start off the morning talking about goats. Goats? (laughs) Well, not that kind of goat. It was a cute goat. I like it. It sort of got a silly grin on his face with the teeth hanging out there. Right Now, now if I were to get a goat, it would definitely have to be one of those fainting goats. I'd be scaring that thing all the time. It'd never be standing up on all fours. It'd constantly be, be freaked out. I could also go for one of these goats. Look at that guy. That is a fierce looking goat, isn't it? That's a guard goat to be, got to be meaner than a dog. Go ahead. Make my day. Step into my yard. I dare you. No, 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 no. I'm not talking about those kind of goats. I'm talking about these kind of goats. Michael Jordan, his airness. Tom Brady, like him or not, he's got an incredible record. Cal Ripken Jr., the Iron Man. All goats in their respective sports. It's an acronym used to describe the greatest of all time. GOAT, greatest of all time. In football, people will argue for Joe Montana or occasionally Brett Farb or Terry Bradshaw. Each have an argument for the greatest of all time. In golf, it's Jack Nicklaus or Tiger Woods. In hockey, there's almost 100% consensus. It's got to be Wayne Gretzky. You know it, Wayne Gretzky. His name even means the great one. Baseball has its argument for Babe Ruth or Hank Aaron, but I'm going to go with Cal Ripken Jr., the Iron Man. In gymnastics, you've got Simone Biles, In tennis, on the women's side, there's Serena Williams. Roger Federer on the men's side, he's my favorite. Or there's Djokovic or Nadal. But who is the greatest that has ever been born of women? The goat when it comes to everyone who's ever lived. Now this being church, you would think the greatest person ever born would be the standard Bible answer, right? We all know what that is. It's Jesus, right? But in this case, you'd be wrong. Because according to Jesus, and I'm going to let him be the judge on this, it's John the Baptist. John the Baptist. Not Mark the Methodist, right? Not Peter or Paul the Presbyterians, not Luke the Lutheran. No, no, no. To be clear, Jesus was referring to John's unique position in history, not a special talent or holiness or or personal merit. Jesus would, of course, not only be the goat, but God himself. Long before any of these denominations existed to divide us, and John wasn't a Baptist, he just was somebody who baptized, that's why he was called John the Baptist. John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And he wasn't worthy, but still Jesus calls him the goat. Jesus said, and I quote, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there is not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. That's from the section of Scripture we'll look at today in in Matthew chapter 11, 1 to 13, and or Luke chapter 7. But first we need to explore a few things about John. When Jesus says, born of a woman, he is literally saying, among anyone who's ever been born. Moses had a mom, David had a mom, Abraham had a mom, everyone ever born had a mom. And Jesus simply says, John the Baptist is the greatest of all time. He's the goat. Why does Jesus say that John is the goat? Well, before we go any further, I want to read our section of scripture for the day so that we have that in our minds as we continue to talk. I'm going to go with Matthew's version in chapter 11 of this story, but you could also look at Luke's in chapter 7 of his gospel. So Matthew 11, the first 15 verses. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are kings in palaces, or in kings' palaces. Then what did you go to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, "I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prayer, who will prepare your way before me." Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. For the days of John the Baptist until now, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has not been or has been subject to violence, and violent people have raided it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Why does Jesus say that John is the goat? Well, Jesus' evaluation is always going to come from a heavenly perspective, from the truth that God created each of us for a purpose. So the greatest person ever born was the one who fulfilled the purpose for which he was created. You see, John was much more than a prophet. He was the best man to the bridegroom. Jesus quotes Malachi the prophet when he describes John the Baptist's purpose. He says, John is the one who was written about, who was written about, and he wrote, I will send my messenger ahead of you, he who will prepare your way before you. It's a description of the best man's role at a Jewish wedding. The best man went ahead of the groom, announcing his, revival, uh, his arrival, he, wa- he made sure that everything was ready for the festival, the week-long festival that was coming up. You think it's expensive to get married now? Imagine paying for an entire week's worth of festival. Oh, my goodness, you need two mortgages. Jesus tells a parable in Matthew 25 that helps us understand. Listen, at at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars... "...along with their lamps, The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, a cry cry rang out, "'Here's the bridegroom! Come out to meet him!' John the Baptist was the one crying out, "'Here's the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! Wake up! He's here! Are you ready?' John was the best man that came for the purpose of announcing Jesus as the Messiah." Matthew, talking about John, quotes from Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one in the wilderness, calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. The last old covenant prophet had a message of preparation, repent, get ready, God's coming. And John wasn't afraid to fulfill his purpose, whether his audience was blue-collar or royalty. No wonder Jesus said that he was the greatest of all times. Being the best man is an important role. You don't want to mess that up. I was best man at my, my brother-in-law's wedding, my sister's wedding, my older sister. He was also my best friend growing up. It was the day of his wedding. He and I were sitting in the basement of the church, where he was going to get married. Just the two of us, reliving the glory days, just shooting the breeze, chilling. When I heard music playing, and I looked up the clock and I realized, hey, isn't there somewhere we should be? Like upstairs maybe? Shouldn't we be upstairs by now? And we both started laughing. By the way, this is why men are not put in charge of these kinds of things. It would never happen. We ran up the steps, as I remember, as fast as we could to take our places in front. As his wife, my sister, and my father are waiting and ready to start without us. In fact, I think all the bridesmaids were already all the way up to the front, and they were ready to take that first step. I don't know about my sister, but I know my father was not too happy. He had that look on his face that just said, Idiot. Idiot. But John, he nailed it. He got it right. He was bold and courageous in fulfilling his purpose. And he was willing to become nothing so Jesus could become everything. Huge crowds were coming to John the Baptist. It was revival time in the wilderness. Matthew tells us, People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John not only drew huge crowds, but they responded to his message. It would have been super easy for him to think, man, I'm hot stuff. Look at my following. Look at my Facebook. Look at all the Twitter followers I have. This is definitely going out on TikTok as soon as I get home. Luke tells us many in the crowd even voiced the thought, is he the Messiah? What was John the Baptist's answer to that thought? Well, Luke 3 tells us, John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one is, who is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John only knew what his purpose was. He knew what Jesus' purpose was. He not only knew his worth, he knew Jesus' worth. He not only knew his power, he knew the power of the one who had come to save the world. When John was in the thick of revival and huge crowds, he never lost sight that it was all about Jesus. He remembered to tell people, I'm not worthy to carry his sandals. Jesus was the goat because he was fulfilling the will of God and magnifying the name of the Lord. When we get smaller and Jesus gets bigger, the world sees who it needs to see. And number three, he knew who Jesus was. He knew it was Jesus when Jesus came to be baptized by him. In fact, he knew who Jesus was even before he was born. That is, John knew who Jesus was. When Mary was pregnant, she went to visit her cousin Elizabeth. Elizabeth is John's mom. And Luke tells us, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greetings, the baby, that would be John the Baptist, leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child, Jesus, that you will bear. John was there when the heavens opened up, and God the Father said, This is my Son whom I love, and I am well pleased in him. So you have John the Baptist, the goat, the greatest of all time. He knew how to be the best, best man to the bridegroom. He knew that he must decrease and Jesus must increase. He knew who Jesus was before he was even born. Then why do Matthew and Luke record for us that John the Baptist had doubts if Jesus was really the one? After all, that is the thrust of what both in Matthew and Luke record for us. When they write that John sent his disciples, not Jesus' disciples, these were John's followers, to inquire of Jesus, if you are the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Translation, hmm, based on my circumstances, maybe I missed something. This doesn't seem to be working out the way that I thought it would. You know, I'd better ask, maybe I missed an off-ramp somewhere. Have you ever doubted God like John did? Maybe you wonder why you're going through such a hard time in your life when you're committed to following him even more. John was probably wondering the same thing. Why would he be in prison if Jesus was who he said he was? I mean, at this point in Jesus' life, John the Baptist was in prison because he spoke truth to the powers that be. He told Herod Antipas that his relationship with his brother's wife was evil. I like the way the Living Bible captures this in Luke 3. It says, But after John had publicly criticized Herod, governor of Galilee, for marrying Herodias, his brother's wife, and for many other things he did wrong... Herod put John in prison, thus adding this sin to all his many others. Talking about Herod's long list of sins. I think Luke was adding a little humor at the end of that. But things weren't so funny for John, of course. While rotting away in prison, John sends his disciples to ask Jesus, Are you the one to come, or should we look for someone else? You see, I think popular Christianity has given doubt a bad reputation. They point to verses like James, chapter 1, verses 6 to 8. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all his ways. And they conclude that all doubt is bad. But I don't think that's the case. In fact, I don't think that's what these verses mean or are trying to say. Now, not believing the answer that God gives you is a different matter altogether. An old French proverb says, He who knows nothing, doubts nothing. G.K. Chesterton said something similar. Materialist and madman never have doubts. Having no doubt is really a demonstration that something is wrong, not that something is right. The problem with doubting is not in having the doubt itself. It is in what is done with the doubt. If doubting is faced honestly and handled properly, then we can actually strengthen our faith. Such was the case for John the Baptist. So what do you do when you doubt? There was confusion on the part of John, and he began to have doubts. But in having doubts, John demonstrates for us what to do with them. Now, John, he didn't start asking other people what they thought of Jesus. He didn't start a new religious poll. He didn't poll the experts, right? He didn't keep mulling it over himself. There were no new straw polls or CNN reports. He definitely did not tune into The View to see what they had to say or contact Dear Abby in the newspaper, if you're old enough to ever remember doing that, or, or reading Dear Abby in the newspaper. Instead, he did what he needed to do. Whenever doubts arise, he sought out the source that can answer his questions. Since he was in prison, he could not go himself. So he sent word by his disciples to Jesus. Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? John's question shows the depths of what he was struggling with. The term the expected one is a reference to the Messiah. It is the title that's found in the Psalms and insinuated by every gospel writer. To ask if Jesus was the expected one was to question whether or not Jesus was indeed the Messiah. John, in effect, is saying to Jesus, I have been uncompromising in my belief that you are the Messiah, but could I have been wrong? This is a deep question, but as we shall see later, Jesus doesn't rebuke him for it. But before we look at Jesus' answer, I want to consider four elements that we may each have that also John, I think, had that contributed to his doubts. These four elements are usually part of our own doubts four causes of doubt. Number one, trying situations. The first element is trying situations in difficult circumstances, and certainly John was in that. He was a man who was used to wandering in the wilderness, wide open countryside, and here now he was confined to a small dungeon pit. It was not for him three hots and and a cot. That's not what prison was in those days. It was pretty brutal. He had been used mightily by God to affect the whole nation, and now he was completely set aside. Trying situations are, are nothing new for those who follow God. Throughout the Old and New Testament, we see believers who suffer through difficult circumstances as they follow God. And all too quickly, our minds begin wondering why God would allow us to go through so much. Sometimes it seems that those doubts are even stronger when such conditions develop, especially after we've been diligently serving the Lord. We start to think, this isn't fair. I mean, if I'm serving God so hard, the least he could do is try to keep adversity off of my back. How could God let me, his servant, go through this? We start to question our beliefs and begin to wonder if they are true. And if we dwell on such thoughts, Satan will magnify them and use them to undermine the trust and confidence that we have in God. Our hardships, they could be physical. We could be imprisoned like John was. It could be something more common, tragedies uh, of life. It could be a financial crisis. We've lost a job. Perhaps someone sues us for whatever reason. Maybe it's a relationship problem. You're in a conflict with a friend or a relative or a child or a spouse. Perhaps your spouse leaves you for someone else. James tells us that difficult circumstances are a part of this fallen world. That is why uh, trials are described in James 1 and 2 as things that we run into as part of life. But in our self-centeredness, we tend to look at everything from our own point of view. We see things as to how they affect us personally. And consequently, we view those troubles in life as negatives. But James says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith, the testing of your faith. This is where doubt can arise. The troubles of life cause us to question what is true and what is not, and that tests our belief and our trust in God. Doubt can arise at this point, but if that doubt is dealt with properly, then the rest of the passage is fulfilled, knowing that the testing of our faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. John needs wisdom in order to deal with the trying situation that he is in. So he sends to ask Jesus for help in the matter. And Jesus responds with help to help John's uh, need, but he doesn't give him a lot of grief for asking the very question. Number two, incomplete revelation can cause us to doubt. It's another source of doubt. John, like Jesus' own disciples, were expecting the coming Messiah to be a conquering Messiah. He was going to set things right, restore the nation of Israel to power. John was having a hard time reconciling that message with what was happening to him. If the Messiah was coming to conquer and to judge the wicked, and if Jesus is the Messiah, then when is John? why is John, the servant of the Messiah, suffering so much at the hands of the wicked? It didn't make sense. John like the other godly men of his time did not understand that the first coming of the Messiah was as a suffering servant. Jesus had much bigger plans. Jesus was being questioned by Pilate. When he was being questioned by Pilate, it tells him that my kingdom is not of this world. John had an incomplete understanding of God's revelation. We are so often in the same situation as John. God says this in Deuteronomy. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of the law. There are things that only God knows, and we need to trust Him to do what is right. Number three, worldly influence. The third cause of doubt is worldly influence. John was subject to that the same as we are. It was not just that John had incomplete revelation, but the revelation that he did have was influenced by the beliefs of those in the society around him. He, in part, was looking for a Messiah who was going to be a conquering king because that's what everybody else was looking for. The same sort of influence affects us. We need to be like the Bereans that Paul preached to in Acts 17. Now, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul was saying was true. They didn't even believe the Apostle Paul. They went home to check it out. And it wasn't like they could just Google it. You know, they had to go get some scrolls in order to do this. And number four, unfulfilled expectations. The fourth cause of doubt, which is related to all of the others, is unfulfilled expectations. Our expectations are built off of what we understand to be true. An incomplete knowledge of the Scripture in conjunction with our lack of understanding, being swayed by the society around us, gives us false expectations. When Joanna and I do premarital counseling, one of the areas we always cover is expectations. Engaged couples tend to to live in a world of romance and wonderful dreams. They're in a cloud as they walk around, right? They're going to get married and live happily ever after, which is when they're going to discover that their spouse squeezes the toothpaste in the middle of the tube rather than winding it up from the end like they should that when they put the toilet paper on the roll, they put it against the wall, not over the wall. Everyone knows it should be on the outside. That just makes good sense. They're going to use so much toilet paper when you hear them go, it's like, it's a half a roll of toilet paper. Fold, fold, baby, fold, don't punch. Fold, right? Got to make the bed every morning. <clears throat> when that doesn't happen, they are unfulfilled expectations. In five days from now, June 2nd, my wife and I will celebrate 39 years of wedded bliss. Oh, and we're still together. Thank you. (laughs) Look, loving and living with someone for 15 minutes, let alone 39 years, takes a lot of commitment and hard work. It doesn't always go the way you want it to go but the reward of a deep-down soulmate is worth it. It's knowing that your roots have become so intertwined together that it's inconceivable that you could ever be apart. That's where the real excitement begins. We try to get couples to talk about their expectations of each other, and they quickly find that marriage is going to take a lot of hard work. When our expectations are not wet, we begin to wonder, what happened? Did I miss something? Was I wrong to start with? What is the truth? Such was the case with John the Baptist, and in such a case, and in such a case with us often at various times. When that happens, we must deal with the doubt in the right way. And as we have already seen, the right way is to go to the source to get our questions answered. John was confused because his expectations were not being met. He was beginning to have doubts as to whether or not he had taken the right path. And he takes those doubts to Jesus. And he asks him, are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? Let's look now at what Jesus' answers are. And Jesus answered, Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Notice that Jesus does not say, yes, I am, nor does he free John from the circumstances that he finds himself to be in. Instead, Jesus tells John's disciples to go back and report to him what they were seeing. And what they were seeing was the fulfillment of several prophecies concerning the Messiah. When Cal Ripken, the goat, was trapped in a hitting slump and finally came out of the slump, he said this, I'm just trying to go back to the basics, Ripken said. The secret of hitting is waiting, relaxing, getting your pitch, and then hitting it. I'm going back to the simple things. Jesus was telling John, you got to go back to the basics. Jesus gave John a special confirmation that he was indeed performing messianic works. John knew the Scriptures well enough to understand that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, even if he did not understand how all of that was fitting together with what he was seeing and experiencing. Jesus concludes with a mild admonition that the person who does not stumble over him would be blessed. I like the way the the passion paraphrase puts the last verse of this section. I think it brings clarity to what Jesus means. Luke 7, 23. And, And he tells John these words, The blessing of heaven comes upon those who never lose their faith in me, no matter what happens. So how do we overcome doubt? First, recognize that there is doubt, and we take that to the source. We take that to the Lord. We ask Him for wisdom to deal with doubt and with its causes. Second, in the midst of confusion, we go back to the basics, the things that we know to be true even if other things don't make any sense at the moment. And most importantly of all, we never, never stop trusting him. Worship team, you can make your way back up. You guys can switch the slides if you want to. I want to end with a story from The Once and Future King by T.H. White. It's a story that comes from the Arthur legend. In the story, Merlin was speaking to to King Arthur, known as Wart, when he was a young man. And this is what he says. He says, Sometimes, Merlin said to Wart, life does seem to be unfair. Do you by chance know the story of Elijah and the rabbi Jacanan? No, said Wart. Wart sat down resignedly upon the most comfortable part of the floor, perceiving that he was in for something like the parable of the looking glass. This rabbi, said Merlin, went on a journey with the prophet Elijah. They walked all day, and at nightfall, they came to the humble cottage of a poor man, whose only treasure was a cow. The poor man ran out of his cottage, and his wife ran too, to welcome the strangers for the night, and to offer them all the simple hospitality which they were able to give in trying times. Elijah and the rabbi were entertained with plenty of cow's milk, and they were put to sleep in the best bed while the kindly host lay down before the kitchen fire. But in the morning, the poor man's cow was dead. Go on," said Wirt. They walked all the next day and came that evening to the house of a very wealthy merchant, whose hospitality they craved. The merchant was cold and proud, and rich, and all that he would do for the prophet and his companion was to offer them lodging in a cowshed, and he fed them on bread and water only. In the morning, however. Elijah thanked him very much and sent for a mason to repair one of his walls, which happened to be falling down as a return for his kindness. The rabbi, Jekanon, unable to keep silent any longer, said, said to the holy man, Explain to me the meaning of this dealing that you have with these human beings. In regard to the poor man who received us so hospitably, replied the prophet, It was decreed that his wife was to die that night. But in reward for his kindness, God took the cow instead. I repaired the wall of the rich miser because a chest of gold was concealed near the place. And if the miser had repaired the wall, he himself would have discovered the treasure. Say not therefore to the Lord, what doest thou? But say in your heart, must not the Lord of all the earth do right. Faith Fellowship, take your doubts to God himself. He welcomes an honest and an open heart. Faith Fellowship, know that God is for you and not against you. We're going to end with a song.